Uh, well, welcome along to Beyond Church. If you snuck in later, if you missed it, or in case you just forgot, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the leadership team here at Beyond, and uh, we are really excited to have you along with us tonight. Uh, in fact, we're launching, if this is your first time here, uh, we are launching a brand new three-part series, the way we like to do things here. We like to do it in series, so we'll unpack an idea or a topic or a theme, and we'll sit on it for a number of weeks. And for the next three weeks, if you're joining us, we are going to be looking at the, at the our series is going to be called Dumb People in the Bible. Uh, dumb People in the Bible. There are so many dumb people in the Bible that, in fact, we, had, we did this series last year and we had to do it again this year because there's so many dumb people in the Bible. Uh, regardless of what stage of life you're at, maybe uh, you've been a Christian your entire life, maybe you actually don't like church at all, uh, or maybe you're somewhere in between. This series, all we want to do is add some value to you. What we want to do is look, all of us at some point in our lives have, have done something that we look back and we go, that wasn't the smartest thing to do. That wasn't the most intelligent move on my behalf. Some people might look in and even call that dumb. So what we want to do is explore three people over the three weeks, look at the different situations that they were faced with, because they're probably going to be situations that you're faced with in your life, and think, how can we approach life differently based on what we know and based on how these three people reacted. Uh, and if you're here and if you're not a Christian and you're thinking, man, I don't really, I'm not really into this, and feel free for the next three weeks, you can take, just take the Jesus out of everything I say, and this can just be a self-help seminar for three weeks for you. So it's, it's going to be worth coming back, even if it's just a self-help seminar for three weeks for you. But in the spirit of dumb people in the Bible, I thought I'd kick this series off uh, by sharing uh, something dumb that I've done. Uh, I have a catalogue of dumb things. Uh, just ask my family, just ask my wife, just ask my friends. Uh, I have a catalogue, but I picked one thing. Uh, when I was younger, I used to play tennis. I, I love tennis. Uh, and as with a lot of young kids, when you're in late primary school, early high school, I had to get my parents to take me around to all my matches. And so my parents were, by default, my cheer squad. And I had two competing ends of the spectrum in my cheer squad. At one end of the spectrum was my dad, and this is usually how my dad would spectate. When I'd hit a good point when I'd lose a game, when I'd win a game. It was always the same. It was always the same. And I don't know about you, but uh, maybe if you've ever played sports or you've ever been at musicals, there, there seems this ability in children and in young people that through the, through, no matter how loud the crowd is, no matter how many people are out there, you can hear your parents' voice. And you know exactly what they are talking to you. And so if my dad was on one end of the spectrum, my mum was on the other end of the spectrum. And if I had one critique of my mum's tennis cheering abilities, it's probably that she wanted me to do well too badly. It wouldn't matter whether I was losing, it wouldn't matter if I was winning. In fact, if you've been watching the Olympics and you see those people with the face paint and the crazy wigs, if my mum got a hold of face paint, I'm sure that's what she would be like. And so she would always be there, come on, honey, you can do it, honey, let's go, honey. And I don't know what it was, but this one particular day, this one particular day, I was uh, at, at a, at a, uh, playing tennis and there was, a, there was a number of stairs you walked down to get onto the court and so the section for spectators was kind of raised up a good couple of metres and I don't know, I was losing the game, I definitely wasn't playing well and mum's trying to will me, she's trying to will me to do better, come on honey, you can do it, come on honey, pull it out, you've got this in you and have you ever done something really dumb and your whole world just goes into slow motion? Well, this was what was happening for me. I can hear mum behind me, and the world just goes into slow motion for me. And I don't know what happened, I don't know what point in the match it was, but I just turned around. 
And I knew what I was going to do was going to be really, really dumb, but I still did it. And I looked up at her and I said, would you please shut up? In front of everyone, you know, if, there's, if there is one thing, you know, if you have parents, if you're still in high school, that's one thing that you can learn from tonight. Do not tell your parents to shut up in public under any, it will not go well. Like right at that second, I was so motivated to come back because I could see the look on my mum's face. I was like, if I can stay out here a little bit longer, maybe it'll get, give her time to calm down because this is not a good situation that I find myself in. <laughs> then, it, then it like escalated to another, another level. See, guys... <laughs> You can learn from this, okay, guys, you can learn from it. If your mother, if your girlfriend, if your wife, if your partner is angry at you, do not give them a systematic re- list of reasons why it's their fault. Okay, just free tip. Somehow, I managed to, and I don't know how, I managed on the car trip on the way home, it was already bad enough as it is, I told my mum to very politely be quiet in public. She took that the wrong way. And then on the way home, I then proceeded to tell her why it was her fault that she made me tell her to uh, politely ask her to be quiet. See, really what I was doing in that situation is I was using a, an excuse to try and excuse my behavior. I was using an excuse to try and excuse my behavior. I was saying, you know, I understand that what I did was wrong, but, but you made me do it. There was a series of events leading up to it and, and you made me do it. And if we're really honest with ourselves, like we do that in life. We use excuses to try and excuse our behavior. And if you don't believe me, like here are some of the classics. I'm sorry, it's, ju- it's just been a long day at work. Uh, the boss had me do overtime. A, a, a tender came in late. I had to get it done. I'm, I'm sorry. That's why I'm so grumpy. That's why I was so snappy. Oh, look, I... I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. The kids were waking up all the time. Or, you know, I was having bad dreams. So that's why I'm grumpy, because I'm tired. That's why. You just wouldn't understand the pressure I'm under at the moment. You just wouldn't understand the pressure I'm under at the moment from work. The boss keeps ramming it down on me. So that's why I'm stressed out. And if we're honest, we use uh, excuses to try and excuse our behavior. We say, no, 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 it's not my fault. And what we do in this situation is we use a person, a situation, or a circumstance, and we say, that person made me do it. That situation at work made me do it. That circumstance that happened today made me do it. And we start to play a little game that I like to call the made me do it game. Because it would never be our fault, right? Someone else made me do it. I responded that way because they made me do it. And, And maybe if you've never been to church, you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, great. Here's this guy up here with the made me do it speech and he's going to give me all the, you know, tell me why I'm a bad person and, you know, all the things I have to do to get my life together. Well, no. See, the only reason I know that you play the made me do it game is because I play the made me do it game. See, the only reason that those those examples click with you is because they're examples that I've, you know, it's really easy to talk about the made me do it game. All I have to do is think back through the last week of my life i got heaps of made-me-do-it examples. But after a while, the made-me-do-it game gets old. And after a while, we start to sever relationships because of the made-me-do-it game. After a while, there starts to become a tension, not just in our family relationships, but in our relationships with our friends, in our work relationships, in our relationships with, with acquaintances. There starts to become a tension when we played the made-me-do-it game. 
And so, so tonight, I'm here. I don't want to tell you to do anything because, to be honest, you wouldn't listen to me anyway. So what I'm going to do is I want to give you one big question that has an application that you can apply across your life so that you can, if not stop playing the Made Me Do It game, at least know where your other option is. If you're not going to stop it because of this question, then at least you'll know what the other option is and you'll be able, you'll be able to make a decision from there. And, and we find this question, we find this tension in a story, in a historical event that actually centers around three main characters. And the three main characters of this story come to an event where someone actually says, you know what, I'm justified in doing this. In other words, they try to have an excuse to try and excuse their behavior. And the three main characters in this story, two of them are husband and wife. One of them is a guy called Nabal and to be honest, I picked Nabal, uh, and I picked this particular event because it's a great way to start off a Dumb People in the Bible series. Because when you translate Nabal's name, it actually means fool or idiot. Like how good, you couldn't pick a better one. So Nabal was actually a fool, but he was a bit of an entrepreneur. He was an entrepreneur for that kind of day and age. He had a, we're told he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was building quite an enterprise for himself. He would have had a lot of revenue coming in, but we're told that he was uh, crude and mean in all his dealings. Now, I'm not saying entrepreneurs are crude or mean. In fact, if you're an entrepreneur, go for gold. You know, I want you to make as much money as you can. But the way Nabal was going about it was in a crude and in a mean way. And then the opposite side, it's like Abigail, his wife. And we don't know a lot about Abigail, but we're told two things about Abigail. We're told that she was beautiful and she was intelligent. I would, I would say, if you were trying to picture this relationship, if you were trying to picture what these two are like, imagine a couple that you see walking down the street or a couple that you know and you think, why is she with him? Or why is he with her? This is that relationship. Nabal is so rude, he's so mean. No one likes Nabal. He's a fool, he's an idiot. And, and Abigail is so beautiful, she's so intelligent, she's so far above his league, but some, for some reason, they're together. They're married. And then the third main character is a guy called David. Now, David's dad, this is not going to mean much to you, but, but just bear with me as we get to it. David's dad is a guy called Jesse. And when David was really young, a, a, a prophet called Samuel came and he spoke to Jesse's dad. And he says, Jesse, I, I want to tell you that one day your young son, David, he's going to grow up and he's going to be the king of Israel. God told me that this, this little son that you have, he's going to grow up and he's going to be the king over all Israel. He's going to be a fantastic leader. And as David grew up, David began to exhibit some of those leadership qualities. In fact, at the point of the story that we're going to pick this up, David, he's not king of Israel at this point. He's what you would probably call a warlord in that area. He is one of the warlords of that region and he has got a following of 600 men. David is not just like some kind of decent leader or some kind of good. David is a leader of like epic proportions. He's got 600 men following him. When there's another king in that land, like this is some serious leadership ability. And David and Nabal have encountered each other before. See, Nabal being the entrepreneur that he is, he sent some of his men out with his sheep and his goats and they've been in other people's pastures and he's trying to grow those sheep and grow those goats. And he stepped into David's region that David was kind of the warlord over, and David actually protected Nabal's men. He made sure that they could go about their business, they could make money for their boss, that no one bothered them while they were around that region, and then he sent them home. 
And so David thinks, well, I've helped Nabal grow his organization. Maybe Nabal will help me grow my organization. It's shearing season, practicalities. I need some sheep sheared and some goats sheared. You know, Nabal has a, a big uh, property. Maybe I can go and use him. So what David does is he sends a group, uh, some of his men and he says, could you please... Could you please just go to Nabal and could you see if we could work out some arrangement? I've helped him out. Maybe, you know, I've scratched his back. Maybe he'll scratch mine. And so we pick up the story at the point where David's men have just stepped in. They've asked Nabal, hey, can we, can we bring some of our sheep? Can we use some of your facilities? Can we help you out? Uh, like, can you help us out like we helped you out? And this is Nabal's response to David's men. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. In other words, David? Never heard of him. And then he takes it a step further. He says, who, is, who does this son of Jesse think he is? Now, that might, that might not make, you know, you think, oh, son of Jesse, whatever. Why is that an insult? Uh, it's really a derogatory way of speaking down to David. If, if I could liken it to anything... I would liken it in our culture when you're kind of having a bit of a discussion with someone and all of a sudden it goes quiet. And that person looks at you or maybe you look at them and you go, yeah, righto, mate. And you use that mate in that derogatory, yeah, righto, mate. Okay, champion. That's exactly what Nabal is doing here to David. David, don't know him. It sounds like a champion. And then he says there are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. So he takes this friendship that uh, David extended to him once and he throws it back in his face and he goes, why should I even help you? And so David's young men returned and they told him what Nabal had said. And David's response is fascinating because David's response is probably what you and I would like to do if we were in this situation probably what you and I would like to do if we, if we encountered situations like this in our life. And I'm going to be honest, it's not what you would think it is. This is David's response. Get your swords. We're going after him. And David strapped on his own. Not just you go get him. You go get him and I'm coming with you. How dare this guy say that to me? How dare this guy throw that in my face? And we might not, we might not grab our swords. But we do something similar. We react to the situation, don't we? We snap back. We bring up the past. Guys are really good at this one. Uh, We just pretend like everything's fine and we just shove it deep down inside of us and, and pretend that it'll all go away. Maybe some of us withdraw from the relationship and we become disconnect. Or maybe some of you mark it down in that little score book that you have. And everyone knows the score book. You just mark it down. You think, I'm not going to mention that right now. But one day in the future, I'm going to bring it up when they least suspect it. And you react. You say, let's get our swords and let's go. The 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard the camp. David was like, this is such a big deal. I'm taking two thirds of my army with me. 400 mercenaries are out to take Nabal down. So as David sets off with his 400 mercenaries to take on Nabal... Abigail gets wind of this. Abigail hears what's going on and she goes, once again, she's like, why did I marry this guy? I just can't, he's such an idiot all the time. But she goes, you know what? I'm going to solve this. I'm going to settle this. So Abigail, she thinks, what, what is the one thing I could do? How could I approach David to try and defuse the situation? 
What's the way to a man's heart? Food. She says, I'll, I'll get David and I'll get his men the most epic care package ever. So and I, I have it right here because I don't know if you're going to... Just remember, this is not like a, a 21st century care package. This is like a way back when care package. So this is the most epic care package that Abigail's put together to take to David. So the care package she's put together has 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep, nearly a bushel of roasted grain... 100, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 fig cakes. And she thinks, if I can take this care package to David and I could say, here, please accept this food. I get it. My husband's an idiot. Please just, please just don't kill him though. Okay? He does this all the time. We're running out of figs. He's got to stop doing it. Seriously. And it says this. It says, as she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming down toward her. Finally, I've got him. He's in my sights. Hopefully this goes well. And David had just been saying a lot of good it did to help this fellow. You know, we protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he has repaid me evil for good. David's doing what we do so often if there's a little bit of a break there. He starts to make reasons why, why his actions are okay. He starts to make excuses I mean, originally, he's like, oh, that kind of annoyed me. And he's like, no, you know what? Let's get our swords. No, I'm justified in getting my swords. Maybe I should take 100 men. No, you know what? It really offended. I better take two. No, let's just 400. Let's go. And the more and more he's going along that journey, he's rationalizing in his head to himself why what he's doing is okay. It's okay because this guy repaid me evil for good. He shouldn't have done that. He should not have done that. So what I'm doing is justified. I have an excuse for the way I'm acting right now. And then Abigail steps in, takes the care package to him, says, here, have something to eat. Just calm down for a second while you you process that. And then Abigail says something profound to David. And she she says these words to him. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel. So she's going back. She's saying, remember, remember when that prophet Samuel came to you, to your father? And he said, one day you're going to be the leader of Israel. You remember that, don't you, David? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So one day, David, you will be the leader of Israel. Okay, remember that. Yeah, I know I'm going to be the leader of Israel. Like, I'm not even the king and I've got 600 men. Like, this isn't even all my guys. Like, come on. And this is what she says next. What she says next is so powerful. She says, don't let this be a blemish on your record. David, you're going to be king either way. And you can either be king going and having slaughtered Nabal or you can be king by choosing to turn around and take your men right back the other way. In other words, what she's saying is don't let the way you react right now in this situation be something that holds your future back. Don't let the way you react to this situation be something that holds your future back. Because let's be honest, whenever someone comes in as, as a prime minister or a president or a CEO, or maybe they're the team leader in your group, or maybe they're just a leader in general. One of the first things you say is, what's this person's track record? Why should I follow them? You know, what, what do they have to offer me? Why should, why should I follow that person at all? We don't like following people. And what she's saying is, David, don't let this be a blemish on your record, because when you're king of Israel, people are going to ask, what was this guy doing before he was king of Israel? And, and you, can, you can go and you can find Nabal, that's fine. 
But at some point, when you're the king of Israel, this is going to come up. And people are going to ask why you did that. And the only response you're going to be able to give is, because he hurt my feelings. Because I didn't like what he did. And they're saying, people don't want to follow a king like that. People don't want to follow a king who makes knee-jerk decisions. People don't want you leading a nation if everything you do and all your leadership is based on your feelings in a particular situation. People are going to want a leader who knows where he's going, who's uncompromising on where he's going, and who doesn't make snap decisions like that just to go to war. No one wants that. So think about this decision right now. And then I love the way David responds. Guys, pay attention. I say that because like, it's, kind of, it's, it's to me as well as a guy. It says this, David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Thank you for pointing out something that, that I had been so consumed in this situation. I had been so consumed with how he had wronged me that I had, I had been, uh, got so wrapped up that I was not able to look into my future. I had been so wrapped up by my emotions, by my feelings, by what I thought should have been right, that the decision I was going to make right now is going to impact me down the track and I was going to miss that. So thank you for pointing that out to me. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance at my own hands. Now, now you and I, we're not fools, right? But sometimes, if we're honest, we act in foolish ways. We're not fools, but we act in foolish ways. See, I, I don't believe that anyone sets out in life to be a fool. I don't believe that anyone sets out in life and their goal is, how can I be the biggest stuff up that I can possibly be? How can I bankrupt myself? How can I cut off all my friends? How can I dive this marriage into the ground? I don't think anyone sets out on life with that as their goal in mind. But over the course of our life, we make one foolish decision and then another foolish decision and then another foolish decision. And if we're not careful, it leads us really far away from a place that we want to be. Eventually, David actually went on and he was the king of Israel. He turned away. He didn't fight Nabal. He did a lot of other dumb stuff, but taking uh, Nabal on was not one of them. And then David had a son. And David's son Solomon wrote this. And like, I'm sure David wished that he had read this or Solomon was before him because Solomon wrote this down. And it'll come up here. It says, it says, no, that's okay. I'll read it off here. Uh, it says, don't answer a fool, there we go, according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Solomon says, you're not a fool, but if you answer in a foolish way often enough, and if you keep repeating it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, eventually you start to act like a fool. And eventually you start to think like a fool. And eventually you become a fool even though that's not the way and that's not where you wanted to start out heading. So you're probably thinking like, okay, well, Chris, I don't have an Abigail in my life. You know, in my life, no one runs down with a care package and is like, here's the right thing to do. I don't have that option. What do I do in my situation? And what I want to do is I want to give you one question that you can ask. One question that you can, you can choose to act on it or not, but this question will show you what the decision is that's going to set you up best for your future 
And then you can compare that to the decision that you want to make. If you're not sure about this, uh, this question, if you ask it, will minimise bad financial decisions in your life. If you ask this question, you will be able to better discern what relationships you should, what romantic relationships you should step into and what romantic relationships you should step out of. If you ask this question, high schoolers and uni students, this is great for you, okay? If you ask this question, you will be able to better prioritize your study, okay? Which ultimately is setting you up for your future, you will be able to, I know that doesn't sound appealing, but ultimately, it will be able to set you up for your future. In fact, any of us in general, if we ask this question and we act on it, it will set us up better for our future. And so the question, we have this thing at Beyond, it's called For Monday. Because we believe, whether you're a Christian or not, or you're somewhere in between, that there's no point coming to church on Sunday if it doesn't change you, at least a little bit, for Monday. So here's the question I want you to ask. The question is this. What's the wise thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? A lot of us, when we think of dumb people, we think of foolish people. We think, oh, well, the opposite of dumb, the opposite of foolish is smart, right? No. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom. So a fool makes foolish decisions because they don't have wisdom to know the difference. What's the wise thing to do? In fact, if you ask this in your life, even if you don't act on it, even if you don't do anything on it, at least you'll know what the wise thing to do is and then you can just go ahead and and do the thing you were going to do in the first place. That's okay. At least you should know the option of what the wise thing to do was. And if you're here, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to pay attention here. If you're not a follower, this is optional. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to pay attention because this is so critical. If you think about the fact that Jesus hung on a cross while his creation looked at him, spat on him, mocked him, and as the life slowly ebbed away from him, what would have you done in that situation? Because I'll tell you what I would have done if I was the Son of God. I wouldn't have been hanging on that cross to let the creation mock me. I wouldn't have been hanging on the cross because it, didn't, it wouldn't have felt good. See, Jesus went on not what he felt, but Jesus was standing there and he goes, what's the wise thing to do? And I don't know what he was running through his head, but chances are he's the God man. It probably wasn't what he really wanted to do. In fact, if you read the New Testament, there are a number of times that Jesus says, is there another way to do this than this? I'll do it if you have to. I'll do it if I need to, but, but this is going to hurt. This is the wise thing to do. And as Jesus hung there, he said, what's the wise thing to do? And he gave up his life for us. Now, if we can get this as followers of Jesus, just think about the impact that we can have on the world, particularly in our current political climate. So often people respond with hate in situations because they don't ask the question, what's the wise thing to do? What's the wise way to respond to that situation? And so often we leverage hatred instead of love. So often we leverage foolishness instead of wisdom because we want to do what makes us feel good in the moment. We just want to get it off our chest and we want to explode. But what's the wise thing to do? How can you be a follower of Jesus and share your faith in a wise way? And as we close this up tonight, as we wrap it up, 
I just want you to imagine, this is, for, this is for everyone. Even if you choose to walk out of here and you go, uh, you know, I, I don't know what application this has. I don't know if it, if it really will benefit me. Think through some of the decisions that you've made, and you don't have to tell anyone, but just think in your head, so decisions in your life that you think probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. I really shouldn't have spent that money on that overseas holiday when I, I'm trying to save. I, really, I know retrospectively I shouldn't have got into that relationship. I know I shouldn't have overextended myself at work. How would that situation have been differently, have looked differently if at the start you asked the question, what's the wise thing to do? How would it have looked differently if you stepped away from your situation, you looked down on your situation and you gave yourself some advice? Instead of being caught up in everything that was going on, instead of making excuses that try and excuse your behavior or excuse your choices, how would it look differently if you'd step back, you'd ask, what's the wise thing to do? And then you'd given yourself some advice. And then not only that, but you'd acted on it. I want you to be wise. I want you to, to not be foolish, not to make knee-jerk decisions like David did. I want you so badly to be wise. Don't allow a foolish response lead you to act the fool. Do not allow a foolish response to lead you to act the fool. What's the wise thing to do? Be wise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us are maybe wrestling with a tension right now where we've got some decisions to make and we're right in the middle of it. And we've been weighing out the pros and cons and we're just not sure exactly what to do. Lord, I pray for people in that situation that they would ask, what's the wise thing to do? Lord, maybe for some people in their life, they look back and they think, oh man, I have made a number of foolish decisions. Lord, I pray for them that they would not feel like it's too late to start being wise. Lord, I pray that they feel like they wouldn't have separated themselves from you. Lord, that they would feel the love that Jesus has for them, the, the love that he extended on the cross. That there is nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of God. But we can begin to be wise. And we can begin to, to walk in the ways that Jesus wants us to walk in. It's not always going to be easy. But wisdom is not about being easy. So Heavenly Father, I pray that this week, that people would begin to ask, what's the wise thing to do? And we offer these prayers in your son's name. Amen.